It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, July 15, 2020. On today's episode, novelist Amy Stewart is here for a live broadcast to talk about her book, Still Here, which is part of a trilogy that includes Still Mine and Still Water. Following the talk, stay tuned for Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. On this day in history, July 15, 1799, the Rosetta Stone is found in the town of Rosetta in Egypt. Now, the town is about uh, 65 kilometers east of Alexandria. It's more or less on the Mediterranean, right at the mouth of the Nile River. The stone showed the same fragment of text in Egyptian hieroglyphics, but also in ancient Greek, which modern scholars still understood. Now, this find of the stone, this all happens in the context of what historians call Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. It's basically, it's an invasion where France sent uh, 400 ships, 54,000 men. Uh, they arrived a year earlier and they invaded just as France had done in Italy. But this Egyptian invasion was a little bit different because in addition to the soldiers and the sailors, Napoleon also brought along 150 scientists and engineers and scholars and their orders were to capture Egyptian culture and history. Ultimately, the military invasion was considered a failure, but the scholarly one was a huge success, in large part because of the find made of the Rosetta Stone by Captain Pierre-François Bouchard. Anyway, until France found this stone and um, acquired it, uh, no one in the modern world had any idea how Egyptian hieroglyphics actually worked. The most popular idea was that the symbols were ideographic, almost like a, an emoji, that each image represented a concept. Then the Rosetta Stone comes into the modern world, and it takes about 20 years, but it's eventually translated, and it allows scholars to figure out every other Egyptian hieroglyphic. That was This Day in History for July 15, 2020. By the way, I did a quick Google search to see if there's been any good movies made about the finding of the Rosetta Stone and then the race to decipher it. And amazingly, this movie doesn't seem to exist, at least not that I could find. Now, our first guest is the author of several thrillers, and maybe we can ask her if she's interested in maybe writing a screenplay, and hopefully that movie will get made. To start the show, here is author Amy Stewart. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Danielle Belanger from the Côte saint Public Library. So I am here to introduce Amy. Amy Stewart is the number one best-selling author of three novels, Still Mine, Still Water, and Still Here. Shortlisted for the Arthur Ellis Best First Novel Award and winner of the 2011 Writers' Union of Canada Short Fiction Competition, Amy's writing has previously appeared in newspapers and magazines across Canada. In 2012, Amy completed her MFA in creative writing through the University of British Columbia. She lives in Toronto with her husband and their three sons. Connect with her on her website at amystewart.ca and on Twitter at Amy F. Stewart. Still here by Amy Stewart. This is the third and final installment of the number one best-selling Canadian author, Amy Stewart's Still Trilogy. Still Here, published on July 7th, both a satisfying conclusion to a beloved trilogy and a standalone book that can be read and loved by first-time fans, Still Here is a gripping and propulsive story that is sure to provide the perfect escape read this summer. From the best-selling author of Still Mine and Still Water, 
PI Claire O'Day is on the hunt for two missing persons. Little does she know she's the one being hunted. Malcolm is gone, disappeared, and no one knows where or why. His colleague and fellow private investigator Claire is certain she can find him as she holds the key to his past. She arrives in the Oceanside City where he last lived and starts digging around. Not only is Malcolm gone without a trace, so is his wife, Zoe. Everyone who knew the perfect couple sees Malcolm as the prime suspect in his wife's disappearance. Everyone except Claire, that is. She's certain there's more at play that has nothing to do with Malcolm, a dark connection to Zoe's family business and the murder of her father years ago. As Claire pulls back the layers, she discovers secrets the entire community is trying desperately to leave in the past. As for Malcolm, his past is far more complex and far more sinister than Claire could ever have imagined. He may not be innocent at all. As she searches for the man who helped her build her career as a private eye, Claire discovers that many women are in grave danger and she is amongst them. So there's my introduction to the book and to Amy. Amy, please uh, tell us all about um, where the idea stemmed from for this trilogy. Okay, well, that goes back a long time, about 10 years. So as you said, Still Here, which came out last week, is the third novel in a series, a, a trilogy. Um, and it, But it does, all three of the books have been written so that if you were to pick it up and start with it, you wouldn't be completely lost. We were very careful to make sure that each could be read on its own. Um, but if you're an avid reader and you have space for three books, then you could always start at the beginning and read the series through. So 10 years ago, exactly, like literally mid-July 2010, I participated in an event in Northern Ontario, about three hours north of Toronto, called the Muskoka Novel Marathon. So this event takes place yearly in July to raise funds for literacy initiatives in Muskoka, which I'm sure you've, you may have heard of Muskoka. It's a region, um, sort of like cottagey uh, region north of Toronto. And so in the main city town of Muskoka, is called Huntsville, they run this novel writing marathon where anybody can sign up and you have to fundraise in order to participate and then you spend a weekend writing basically as much as you can of a novel and you're only allowed to come into the marathon with a single page like one page of notes so I had had this idea for a long time about a woman who is on the run from her own history her own life and she sort of falls into the work of looking for other missing people. And so that is essentially the premise of the first book. So I had written down a page worth of notes and I went into the Muskoka Marathon uh, 10 years ago. And in a weekend, I wrote 50 pages, which sounds like a lot, but by Muskoka Novel Marathon standards, I was actually like probably had the, the fewest. Some people write literally write 150 pages in a weekend. They, they like don't leave, they sleep on the floor. It's crazy. So I did 50 pages, which for me at the time, I had like a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So it felt like a huge accomplishment for me. And then I was 
thrilled when about six weeks later, they announced that my manuscript um, was the winner of the, of the they had a, an editor who sort of judged all of the manuscripts and mine won uh, the fiction the fiction sort of category. So then because of that win, I got FaceTime with an editor who sort of gave me some feedback and that editor was extremely supportive of me continuing. So I, at the time, was doing my master's in creative writing through UBC. And normally, like if you're doing a master's, thrillers or mystery novels are not something that people generally work on when they're doing a master's degree in creative writing. So I asked for special permission to continue with this thriller project and use it as my thesis. And they were very gracious and said that I could. So that's how I um, finished the first book, which wasn't titled Still Mine at the time. I can't even remember. It had a million titles over the course of the process of finishing it. Um, And then about a hundred pages in, so my main character's name is Claire and she's the one who is on the run from her own life. And she sort of falls into this private investigator type work um, of searching for missing uh, women. It's always, it's in, in all three books, it's a woman. And so she, um, I realized about a hundred pages, 150 pages into the first book that her story her sort of arc of Claire coming to terms with her past and escaping her past and all of those things was just not going to happen in one book. There was no way I was going to get her to her particular personal finish line in one book. So that's when the idea of a series sort of came to mind. And I thought, well, maybe I could write two or three or four or whatever the number was. And then about a year later, I was very lucky to um, get an agent and, and then and then my agent submitted it to publishers and and it was accepted by Simon and Schuster and they really recognized the appeal of a series at that point I'd only I finished the one book um, so so they signed me to a two book deal with the possibility of a third which was amazing and I am I am skimming over a lot of rejection (laughs) that happened in there. I don't want to say like I'm making it sound like it was a very easy process. It wasn't. I, you know, I was rejected by agents and then by a lot of publishers. Um, Publishers, the Simon & Schuster was the only one that accepted the manuscript and really all you need is one. Um, But it's interesting in the, in publishing, you really do see once you publish a novel, how, how much publishers are just sort of trying to take a chance to figure out what readers want to anticipate what readers will be reading six months down the road or a year down the road, because um, a novel like mine, which still mine, which went on to become a number one bestseller was rejected by every publishing house in Canada, except for one. And so, you know, it's, it's just to say that if there are any writers out there um, that just because your writing is is facing rejection, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an audience somewhere. So I, I urge you to continue. Um, so then after the first book was published um, and it did very well, which sort of gave me um, a lot of space to continue in terms of the publishers wanting me to continue. Um, the only problem was at the time, I guess, when uh, still 
mine was first published, I had three kids that who were still young, very young at the time. And I was working full time as a high school teacher. So uh, life balance became difficult for me. I was uh, promoting one book that had been published, trying to fin- write the second. And then, and then obviously like working full time and then trying to parent um, three kids and do all of the associated tasks and take on all the responsibilities that come with that. So that was a very exciting but busy time. Um, And I will say writing three books, if anyone's tried to write one book, um, the experience of writing a novel is sort of there's the beginning and the end and then there's the middle and and a lot of writers will refer to the muddle in the middle which is um you know you have your beginning where you're sort of introducing everything and then your end where you wrap things up and maybe it's like exciting this big finale and then you have this middle section where you have to sort of keep everything straight keep the momentum going but um but not get lost or go off on too many tangents and really in a in a trilogy, the same is actually true of the middle book. So like I said, Still Water, which is the second book, can be read as a standalone. It's set up so that you don't have to have read Still Mine and you don't have to have read Still Here in order for it to make sense. But for me, thinking about Claire and her arc all the way through, um, it it was the middle. So I had to sort of start at the end of Still Mine and end at the beginning of Still Here. And so that made for a very intricate and intense writing process um, that was, you know, I think of the three books, absolutely the hardest one to write. And then Still Here, I started it about two years ago, and it sort of poured out of me in a way that the other two books didn't. Um, I wrote it in furious uh, sprints. Um, You know, sometimes I've I've had phases phases in my life where I've written for just 20 minutes, three times a week, and then phases in my life where um, I've sort of locked away if I can get 24 hours alone and worked like furiously with barely even sleeping. So I don't have like a set routine, but still here was definitely written in those furious bursts. And I finished it in December of 2019. And then, and then it came out in July. So that's about the normal lead time. So it's been a super fun process. I'm about, well, I'm exactly 10 years from when I started Still Mine and four years since Still Mine was published that I've been sort of a public writer. And if any of you out there are um, writers or thinking about writing, the one piece of advice I would give you is to just keep your writing practice super manageable, like I had to do um, when I was at my busiest, um, that I always tell people writing for 15 or 20 minutes at a time, three times a week is going to be better and will produce more than trying telling yourself that you're going to write for three hours, three or four or five times a week, and then feeling so overwhelmed by that prospect that you don't actually do it. So that's the lesson that I've learned in writing that I was able to finish after still mine, I was able to basically finish a novel every two years um, by writing just in short stints. And just in terms of the plot, um, like I said, I don't want to give away too much because still here is, you know, the sort of final book, but 
Claire is a very troubled main character. Um, my goal in writing her was to create a flawed protagonist, which means someone who um, who's who comes from a lot of trauma, who's had a lot of struggles and issues in her own life. And so Claire, on the first page of the first book, arrives in this town and she's looking for a missing person. And then she meets Malcolm, uh, who hires her to work as, as this PI. And then that carries through, through to the third book. So by the time you get to Still Here, if you were to start on page one of Still Here, you would meet a very different Claire from the beginning of Still Mine in that she's evolved a lot. Even though the period in which the books take place is only about two or three months, um, Claire has evolved a lot and she's much more self-assured, she's confident, but still, I mean, we can't shake off our flaws in, you know, eight weeks. I mean, I wish we could, but that's just not realistic. So she's still that same flawed person in some ways when you have all those flaws in place and all those vices in place, but you're a little more confident, um, that can actually get you in more trouble because maybe you're less likely to be hesitant or worried about the mistakes you might make. So I had a lot of fun in the third book exploring that, um, the effects of Claire's sort of new self-assurance and, and confidence. And the story is that she arrives, um, Malcolm, who we, who readers would have met in the first book, um, is missing now. And part of why he's missing is because this, this very rich and complicated past has caught up to him. And Claire um, has some faith that maybe he's not the bad guy that uh, he's been portrayed as um, by the community that he came from. So Again, the, the goal for me always in the books is to sort of create this place. In, in the case of Still Here, it's called Loon Bay. And there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of secrets and a lot of characters whose, whose well-being depends on those um, secrets staying hidden. And that that's really how you build a thriller. It's by examining what people are keeping from each other, the lengths that people are willing to go to to protect themselves and protect each other. Um, one, there's one line in the book that I think summarizes the theme really of all three of my books, which is um, one of the characters says to Claire, you know, there isn't really such thing. There are, in, in the world, there are, only a handful of truly, truly, truly evil people. And most people who do bad things do them because they feel very justified in doing so. Either they're trying to protect someone they love or themselves, or maybe they're trying to avenge someone they love or themselves, or you know, maybe they've had some kind of break or something like that. So I really like looking at the complexity around why people are motivated to do bad things and also what who is the bad guy in a situation you know that's always a very um, subjective question and I think that thriller writers can have a lot of fun by thinking about that by not automatically making like an evil villain character but instead sort of asking questions around the complexity of who's good and who's bad and how none of us are 100% good and none of us are 100% bad. So I really tried to play with that in Still Here. And now the series is done. Um, 
and Daryl actually said, you know, talking about writing a screenplay, I've never written a screenplay, but um, still here, the still books are in the process of being sort of developed for TV. And so I did recently read a script of one of the books and, um, and it was really thrilling to see someone else try to interpret it in a very different way for a different medium. Um, and then now I'm working on a new thriller that's not one of the still books, so it's completely different. Um, it feels fun and scary and uh, sort of freeing in a way, but also very different for me to be working on something different for the first time in 10 years. So, um, and now, you know, we're all in the world, like I'm down here and my kids are upstairs. So um, I've had my kids home for, what are we now, four months? <laughs> I've, 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 I've lost all, all track of time. Uh, so that's put a bit of a wrench in my writing, but I'm still trying to just go on the uh, 20 minutes at a time is better than nothing. And, you know, I, I can be pretty efficient now. I can usually write a page or two in 20 minutes. So if I do that three times a week, that's better than nothing. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me and um, my writing process and the story of the still books. And I'm happy to take any questions if anyone has any. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how Canada and the Canadian landscape fits into your novels, to your trilogy. Well, that's an interesting question. So when I first started Still Mine, um, the landscape was like very explicitly Canadian. So I, it takes place in the mountains and I actually refer to her driving through Alberta and arriving in British Columbia and arriving in mountains. And then as the editing process went on, a real sort of aspect of the book is the sense of Claire feeling quite lost. Um, and so we sort of, my editor suggested that maybe we remove specific mentions of time and place or most well, place in particular um, in order to give the reader and Claire this sense of like where actually is she so there is a town in every in every book there is a town but I don't actually specify where it is and that has two benefits one is to sort of give this reader um, the sense give the reader the sense of being lost with her but it also allows for an expanded audience of readers, like say American or, or readers outside of Canada to um, interpret the location as, as they wish. So I see it, I saw the first book and then I also pictured um, still here as being sort of Oceanside, Pacific Ocean, um, but, and still mine, um, you know, sort of uh, the mountains in BC, but, but I've heard from readers that they pictured Stillmine as Virginia and a whole bunch of other places. So I think leaving it open um, serves a purpose. And, and so I just sort of invented. But in terms of me imagining these places, I, you know, I'm really just working from my imagination like I'm not writing about I mean I grew up in Toronto and my parents are from Prince Edward Island so um, that's where I spent 
my life and and not, none of those places appear um, in the book. So I really was drawing from imagination and actually trying to, to conjure and create uh, settings that I've never really spent a lot of time in. Um, because I think that by doing that, I was allowed to sort of channel Claire's own sense of like, what is this place? I was sort of discovering them alongside her. So I think, you know, my inspiration comes from Canada in that when I'm writing a river, I think about rivers um, that I've seen, uh, but, but I'm not situating the story specifically in Canada. And thank you, Amy. I see now we have a question uh, from the audience, which is uh, it's sort of two questions. Mm -hmm. So the first of two is, has becoming a published best-selling author changed the way you read other books? And the second is, do you notice things you didn't before you had your own books, always see the twists coming, for example? No, no, no. Um, I definitely would say that... Um, I mean, ever since I sort of started writing in a serious way, which probably would have been about 15 years ago, um, I do look at, uh, at write other books that I'm reading differently in that, in that I'm, I'm always sort of in awe of strategies that other writers use to get. If you think about the first page and the last page of a book and the sort of meandering path they have to take, uh, through the plot and the characters and the storyline to get there. Um, I love it when I find a book who, or a writer who's able to completely blow me away with the tricks and techniques that they use to do it. Um, so I think I, I do read, I don't want, I'll say more critically, I don't actually mean like I'm being critical, but in terms of I'm spending maybe more time than the average reader thinking about the actual mechanics of a story or the quality of a writing. Um, and even one thing that I do think about is my editor will say that readers will give you, in the course of a novel, they'll give you a couple of gimmies. So especially with a thriller, sometimes you have to stretch like what's believable and, and readers will go along with that. But if, if you do that too much, um, then you're going to lose your readers. And my editor's always reminding me of that. So I'm paying attention to that a lot too when I'm reading particularly thrillers. Like how, how much is the writer asking of the reader in terms of believing things like coincidences or, you know, sort of plot twists that come out of nowhere. Um, readers will be very generous with you, but they're not going to be so generous as to let you get away with like total murder, no pun intended, um, around how you navigate a story. And in terms of really since becoming a published author, I think I'm just a lot more aware of how much work goes into a book outside of the writer. Like once you submit and hand in a book to a publisher, it becomes its own little being in the world where you have a whole bunch of people from the editors to the book cover designers, to the sales team, to the publicity and marketing, to the booksellers. And it, like, it is kind of amazing to see that you create this little, this little being and then it moves through the world completely independently of you um, into readers hands and then readers read it and they do book clubs and they share experiences. Um, so I think I've been really in awe of just 
how robust and healthy the book industry is in Canada and just how much work so many people put into sharing a book with readers, not just mine, but every book I hold, I'm so aware of all the work and love that went into getting it from the writer's you know, manuscript to my hands. So that's been a really great thing to sort of learn about the industry. I think we talk about books dying, but I don't think so. So Amy, you talked a little bit uh, about how keeping your writing practice manageable is very important in writing, like to allocate a 15 or a 20 minute period per day rather than to try and say, I'm gonna write for three hours. Are there yeah. any, any other tips and tricks you could suggest to prospective uh, writers out there for making sure they keep their creative juices flowing? Yeah, well, I would say like the 20 minutes or 15 minutes every day, like, honestly, I, I will tell people that literally writing for two minutes, three times a week, like sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a paragraph. Um, right now and while I'm waiting for the water to boil for my pasta or something like that, that even that is better than having this sort of sense of, oh, I have this idea and I want to write, but I just don't have the time and my life is too busy and I don't have the headspace. That if you do that, the little tiny bits that are manageable, um, you're far more likely to eventually find yourself maybe writing about the same thing every time you sit down or revisiting a character that you've created and, and some something might actually start to form and take hold. So if you're struggling with that, you know, how do I do this? How do I even get started? I would say like, I say 20 minutes, but I mean, I'm like now a professional writer. Um, so I would say like even two or three minutes is better than no minutes always. And, and then on top of that, I would say um, just try to keep it fun. So I actually run um, uh, an Instagram page and a sort of community online called Writerscape. And every couple of days I post, we post writing prompts, which are like quick little um, subjects. So it would be like, okay, here's a scene for you. You're at a party and something happens. What happens next? And the, the idea behind these writing prompts is to give people who are feeling stuck or just want to write but don't have any direction, um, a starting point. And then, and then you can write a story or a paragraph and then drop it or maybe something, like I said, will emerge from it. Um, and you can use a new prompt the next time or maybe you can continue on with what you started. So I think that if, again, if you're having that struggle, um, just taking off as much pressure as you can on yourself, on your writing self, on, on, you know, your life to just, we all have like a million things that we're all trying to do at any given time, like not just writing, but like exercise and get enough sleep and do our work and, you know, raise our kids and whatever. So writing shouldn't be adding to those pressures. It, instead, it should be like an outlet and an escape for you. So if you're having trouble, my advice is just peel away everything that's stressful about writing and go back to short bursts of fun and, and you'll reconnect with it hopefully in really positive ways. Thank you so much, Amy. So a couple more questions are coming in from the audience. So the first one is, do the characters still live in your mind now that the series is done? 
Yeah, I think that they always will. Um, Claire in particular, you know, she and I really got to know each other. And by the third book, I found, I won't say easy because writing is never easy for me, but I will say that that writing scenes uh, where she is sort of the prominent figure in the scene uh, felt a lot more natural to me. Um, because I felt like I knew her and so much of writing is trying to get to know your story and get to know your characters and by the third book I really felt like I knew her um, and I really wanted to sort of do right by her and do her character justice so they do um, definitely live in in my mind in that you know I don't know that I would write another book but I certainly would be super excited at the prospect of seeing it developed into tv um, and I love, I, I love, like, I love visiting book clubs and talking to readers about their interpretation of the characters. Um, because what you see when you do that is that, is that you've put a certain sort of thing down on the page, but that's not necessarily what, how readers interpret. And so it's really wonderful to, to recognize that your characters can have a life like outside of you where um, someone else sees them, meets them and, and feels that they're a very different person from who you um, put them on the page to be. So um, I love that. I love this sense that they do live outside of me and that my relationship with them is not the same as other people's. Thank you, Amy. So the next question I'm seeing from the audience is, it sounds like a book, it's almost like having a baby. <laughs> and then it says, do your kids give you any ideas or inspiration for your books? Yeah, I, so I have three kids and I have three books. So, um, you know, I seem to do things in threes. Um, and yeah, I mean, my kids are funny with the books, um, they're sort of on the one hand, like super indifferent, uh, are like my fam. I'm not like, I get no, um, kudos for being a best-selling author in my house. Um, but, uh, they do like, they are very interested in the storyline and, and they've heard sort of other people talk about how, you know, I write these books that have like, dangerous, scary things that happen. And so obviously I have three boys, so they're pretty um, interested in that. And they do, they have their own ideas. My middle son in particular likes to write comics. Um, he's always making up superheroes that have like, you know, special farting powers. That's a big one in our house. So um, I, I like to sort of encourage them to keep their ideas on their own uh, to themselves and sort of write their own books but they are engaged in in you know they're very interested in writing and, and I one thing I do try to convey to them is how writing a book is not just like sitting down and hammering out 300 pages and then like sending it off like I want them to understand the the levels and levels of editing and work and going back because I think that's a, a very good lesson for them just in terms of if you want to be good or successful at anything it's not you don't just try it once and then you know it goes out the door and suddenly you're an expert there's like layers and layers and levels and hours of work behind it so I think them seeing that has been really valuable Thank you, Amy. Another question that is coming in is, have you always been a thriller reader or what else do you like to read in general? 
Yeah, I like I never thought when I started I started my master's degree in 2007 and I if you had told me in 2006 or 5 or even 7 that I was going to, you know, 10 years later be a thriller writer, I would have been like there's no way. I saw myself as writing like literary novels or short fiction. But, you know, I think that one thing that's happened in that time is that thrillers have expanded in terms of like you know, there more literary novels have thriller elements and more thrillers have sort of literary elements. So as a reader, I used to read a lot of like, um, like John Grisham when I was in high school, um, sort of, I guess, thriller, like the legal thrillers and uh, like Jurassic Park, I'd read books like that. Um, so I did, but I didn't read a lot of like mystery. I never even read Nancy Drew um, I didn't read much of that. I and and then since then I've I've read really broadly. Like I think that um, a thriller writer should definitely not read only thrillers. It's important to read um, like a breadth of thrillers. But I also read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I read a lot of literary fiction. I try to read. Um, you know, I try to stay stay sort of on top of what's coming out in Canada. I get asked to read a lot of books, you know, so you can write like the blurbs that appear at the top, um, which is like a real privilege because I get to read books before they come out. Uh, but uh, I read like a huge range, um, and sometimes I'll go through, like at the beginning of the of this COVID madness in March, I was reading like two books a week. And then now for some reason, I'm not reading much at all. So it, that also varies depending on my brain or what's going on in my life. You know, I go through these bursts where I'm reading a ton and then times where I'm just not reading much at all. So I try not to worry about that too much because I always come back to it. Okay, thank you so much, Amy. Um, I read somewhere that you had a concussion. Can you tell us about what happened and how that affected your writing oh, and your career? Yeah, so I coach uh, my son's hockey team and three and a half years ago, three, well, yeah, it's three and a half years ago, I uh, fell on the ice. I was wearing a helmet, but I you know, took a wipeout and, and hit my head on the ice. And I had a concussion um, that was, it was sort of a weird journey for me. Like I knew right away that I had a concussion, but I felt okay. Um, after about a week, I felt like pretty normal. So I thought, okay, I'll just sort of continue on. But so at the time I was writing Stillwater and so from about the concussion was at the end of January, I believe. And then, so for February, March, April, I like stood, sat and stared at a blank page. Um, it was like, like, I don't, I can't even explain it. Um, it was, it was like, I just didn't have something just like some wheel wasn't turning in my brain and I couldn't move anything forward. And I didn't even really know why. Um, I also had some like sleep issues and anxiety and, and, uh, and I, I just didn't connect it to the concussion until one day I did. And I thought, you know what, like, I, 
this is all new. And why am I literally staring at my computer screen for two hours a day and like not coming up with anything? So once I made that sort of realization, and then I entered into like a concussion management program um, with a with a specialist who you know gave me like funny eye exercises and put me on a sleep routine and like a special eating routine and I had to sort of do all these special things and I and my initial recovery was like super fast um, thank, thankfully and then I wrote I finished a draft like starting around mid-May in like five weeks so it just kind of came, it was obvious that there was like you know, a whole massive tidal wave in there that just couldn't get out. And then once my brain, once that wheel started turning again, um, it just poured out. So, but since then, I, you know, I still have issues. Um, I wrote an essay recently about concussion, about being a writer with a concussion. I sort of refer to like a concussion club where anyone who has one, it's like you meet someone on the street and you've had a concussion. You're like, I know. Hey, how's it going? Like you sort of have this shared experience um, and everyone's experience might be different in terms of how it manifests, but, but just in terms of how it just doesn't go away overnight and you can be better and then not better. Um, so, but ultimately I think for me that concussion as a, from a writing perspective has taught me how to go easier on myself, um, which, you know, comes back again to the whole, like, keeping it manageable. And so for that, it's been a valuable experience. Like I used to put so much pressure on myself, I would be like, you have to write, you have to get up at 5am and you have to write for two hours and before the kids get up. And now I just know, like, I, I can't do that. I can't get up at 5am. I hate getting up at 5am. I don't want to do that. So, um, so I don't, I might get up at 645 and write for half an hour instead. Um, so just sort of being a little bit more forgiving of myself and, and, and just recognizing that, you know, life is busy and I'm only capable of so much. So I'll, I'll be sort of always grateful. Um, but yeah, if you, if anyone out there is suffering from a concussion and you haven't gotten sort of real help, I would advise that you do, because it made a big difference for me. Thank you again, Amy. Um, so for those people who are out there and who want to pick up your latest book, but haven't started from the beginning of the trilogy, and you've said you can pick up, you don't have to start at the first one, you can start the second one or at the third one. Um, what will they expect to read? Like, What is sort of the story in a nutshell? Of the, you mean just of still here? Of still here. Well, still here is Claire arriving, um, just like the other two, it starts with her arriving in um, a town, in this case, it's Loon Bay, which is a sort of like, I picture it as being like a, think of like a town that's perched on the side of the ocean with like the roaring waves and the glass houses, this sort of rich seaside town. Um, and she's there because Malcolm, uh, this person in her life has gone missing and previous to him going missing part of the reason why he's disappeared is because um, earlier his wife Zoe disappeared um, and he is the prime suspect so he, 
Claire figures that his disappearance is related to, you know, wanting to avoid getting caught for his wife's. So, and then, and then, you know, that's the sort of story that she walks into, but it wouldn't be a thriller if, if that wasn't the actual story. So the book sort of peels back the layers. Claire is now on her third case. So she's a bit better at saying, okay, I've got this mystery to solve. Where do I go first? Who do I talk to? Um, and then of course she gets sort of swept into um, the politics and the secrets of this town. Um, she meets some of the key players and then recognizes um, that she's in danger, that, that this act of digging and, and looking is putting her in, in, uh, in a tough and dangerous situation. So uh, yeah, so, and then, um, like I said, you don't have to have read the first two books. Um, it reads as a standalone, but if you have time or the inclination, um, you, you know, certainly wouldn't hurt to start at the beginning. So the last question I have for you, Amy, is um, your character, Claire, um, is she based on you or on someone you know or completely fictional? How did she come about? Well, she's not based on me. Um, I would say that when I started writing these books, I was working as a high school teacher and I was working in school, uh, a school for students who were at risk. And over the course of writing, I moved into working as a guidance counselor in that school. And one thing that um, actually started when we were talking about uh, a book, I was talking about a book with a student, I can't even remember what book. And she said, um, this student said to me, I said, you know, do you, how do you, do you feel you can relate to this character in the book? And she said, no. Um, people like me are never the heroes in a book. And this young woman, you know, was troubled. She'd had issues with addiction and homelessness. And, and so that stuck with me in a huge way where I thought, um, you know, that's really actually true that the sort of deeply flawed, troubled protagonist who has, you know, addiction issues and trauma and makes kind of bad decisions because, you know, she's dealing with trauma. Um, is very rarely like the hero of a of a book like this, where where the the storyline depends on her being successful at what she does. Um, so I just I wanted Claire to sort of manifest the idea that just because someone has a troubled past and they're flawed and they've dealt with this stuff, it doesn't mean that they can't um, be heroic and be successful in a line of work and they, they might make mistakes and they might frustrate the reader along the way. Um, but I really wanted to sort of tell that story. So I think in a way, Claire became an amalgamation of a lot of the students um, that I'd encountered in that work. You know, no student in particular, but a lot of students who had this really intense strength and self-awareness and um, fortitude that came from the struggles that they'd had, and also like just a like a like a wisdom. So I, I really liked that idea and of creating um, a really flawed protagonist that that people like that student would would maybe see themselves in if they read the book. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm just going to wait one more minute to see if there's any more questions that come from the audience. Okay. 
Um, in the meantime, uh, can you give us just a little taste of what you're working on right now? Um, yeah, well, it's a very different book. Uh, this one's written in first person. So the narrator is telling the story and it's uh, a thriller that takes place over the course of one day. And the reader learns at the beginning, like on the first page, that someone is going to sort of face their death, um, be murdered, whatever the case may be, um, over the course of that day. But we don't know who or why or where. Um, so it's sort of like, a, you know, Virginia Woolf wrote this book, Mrs. Dalloway, which is, you know, the, uh, one character moving through a single day. And so I want, I like the idea of playing with that same idea, but with a thriller um, component to it. So um, telling the reader that something's going to happen at the very beginning and then, and then working your way through to that event with them. So I can't say much more than that. But, uh, but that's what I'm working on. Thank you so much, Amy. So that's all the questions we have for you today. I wanna to say a big thank you to you and your publisher, Jill, and Simon and & Schuster for connecting us and being able to host you today. Thank you everybody so for, for joining me. us. Yes, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Amy. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Centre for Performing Arts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
what's that word again? Straight up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. What would I give if I could live out of these waters? What would I pay if I just spend a day warm on the sand? What's a fire and why is it? What's the word? Burn. When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore that shore up above? Out of the sea. Wish I could be part of that world. Gorgeous Alamancan ballad. We're not done yet, though. Oh no, there's more where that came from. <clears throat> I admit that in the past I've been a nasty. They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch. But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways. Repented, seen the light, and made a switch. Yes, and I fortunately know a little magic. It's a talent that I always have possessed. And here lately, please don't laugh. I use it on behalf of the miserable, lonely, and depressed. The pathetic are unfortunate souls in pain and need. This one longing to be thinner than I want to get the girl. I know I have them. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. These poor unfortunate souls, so sad, so true. They come flocking to my cottage from crying spells. There's no please that I help them. Yes, I do. Now it's happened once or twice. Someone couldn't pay the price. And I'm afraid I had to rake and cross the coals. Yes, I've had the odd complaint. But as a whole, I've been a saint. pretty face and don't underestimate the importance of body language the men up there don't like a lot of blubber they think the girl who gossips is a bore yes a land is but preferred for ladies not to say a word and after all they're what is liable prattle for come on they're not all that impressed with conversation two gentlemen avoid it when they can but they don't and swoon and fawn on a lady who she who holds her tongue against her man. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul. Go ahead, make your choice. I'm a very busy woman, and I haven't got all day. You won't cost much, just your voice. Be poor unfortunate soul. It's sad, but true. If you want to cross a bridge, my speech, you have to pay the toll. Take a call, take a breath, and go ahead and 
notice him. If someone in a movie show yelled fire in the second row, this whole place is a powder keg, you'd notice him. Wah, wah, wah. And even without clucking like a hen, everyone gets noticed now and then. Unless, of course, that person it should be. Me. Everyone, cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, it should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, cause he can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there, I tell ya, cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, it should have been Yeah. 
a star and the audience loves me and I love them and they love me for loving them and I love them for loving me and we love each other and that's because none of us got enough love in our childhood and that's showbiz, kid. She's given up her humdrum life, she's gonna be a Roxy, or she made a scandal and a star. And Sophie Tucker will shit, I know, to see her name get billed below. This segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Coat St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Coat St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day. <laughs>